Welcome back to Foster.Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster.Minnesota. And I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator at Foster.Minnesota. Today's episode is Open Your Heart and Mind. Chris, who do we have with us today? Hey, Sunny. Samantha is our guest today. She connected with us through our website to share her family's unique story of adoption through foster care. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you for your willingness to share your story. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So I am a a mom of two little girls, um, and we also do respite and foster care for other children that come into our home right now, mainly teenagers. Um, And we actually, um, our youngest daughter was adopted from foster care and she, um, she came from the lower Sioux community. Uh, Her mother was not a member, but was very affiliated. Her grandfather was a member of the tribal community. Um, And so we have a lot of experience around what it was like to go through uh, three years of going through court and navigating customs and culture and family relationships and setting boundaries and just trying to balance the understanding of the law, but also being very respectful to family, culture, and tribal custom as well. Great. Um, So when did you become licensed for foster care? How long have you been licensed? And was your intent to adopt or did the opportunity present itself? Gosh. um, So no, our intent wasn't to adopt initially. Um, We we were very happy parents of our daughter, um, but I just love having kids around. We always have kids in our home and the neighborhood. And so I was like, well, why don't we do something with that? Why don't we expand our family in a different way? And it doesn't have to be permanent. So it was about, gosh, six, seven years ago, uh, we went through the training in Olmstead County and you know, they try to, I feel like sometimes maybe scare you out of it a little bit, <laughs> but instead we were intrigued. Um, we were lucky that our next door neighbor has been very involved in this and he, um, he works in therapy and he's worked with the county and a lot of children in the community. So I felt very safe knowing he could be a resource if we needed it. Um, but we actually went into this thinking we would do mo- mostly short term and respite. Um, and then actually what ended up happening is about a year into it, our very first placement, she is still here um, and she gets to be with us forever and we get to be with her forever. And we grew our family enormously through her family. Great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. So that's really interesting that you grew your family through her family. So that's, that's uh, pretty neat. That's a great angle I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, it's one of those things where we weren't thinking of that as well. We knew going into it, one of the things that it's really pushed is family connections. It's incredibly important. I mean, every book you read, every training will tell you maintaining those connections. It's not just critical for the children involved in their identity, but it's it's part of the entire family. So we went into this knowing, okay, we know we're going to have to set boundaries. We have no idea what to experience. We've heard horror stories of the wazoo. But I think what happened for us, honestly, is we met my daughter's mother for the very first time. It was, she was, it was about three days after placement. And the first thing I saw was this beautiful woman who was terrified. She had no idea what's going on. She's like, what is this woman doing with my baby? And I just walked up to her and she's not a hugger, but I gave her a big hug. And I just said, I'm here for you. What do you need? 
And I don't know, there was just something there that just said, she's going to be family, whether or not, whatever happens, you know, we're going to try to make this work. We're going to get this child back with you. That is our goal. But I want to be part of your life. And we just tried to set that right from the beginning with her and build that relationship. And it's turned into, I've got aunts and uncles and grandparents and nieces and nephews and kids that sometimes come over and they just think of me as like stepmom, right? I'm just another mom in their life. And, and that's totally okay. When they're here, they get to be my kids and then they go home and they're someone else's kids. And that's fine too. Just, we have a big, crazy, awesome family now. What I like that you yeah, I like that you said you you hear about the horror stories and and all the scary things. So you're you're shedding light on the good side of things too that can happen. Yes, I mean it's not perfect, right? It's not, and right. it's it's we're it's dysfunctional for sure. <laughs> Most but families are <laughs> exactly I, that's how I look at it. You know, my husband and I both grew up in families. We love our our parents. We love our families, but it's not perfect. You know, we had our challenges growing up as well. And so we came into it knowing that all families are, there is no perfect family. That is just reality. There's no perfect family. What you do is you try to make the most of what you have. And again, setting those boundaries so that it's healthy as as much as possible and just being inclusive and patient and open-minded and non-judgmental whenever possible, setting aside biases and just opening your heart. And there's a lot that can happen when you do that, building relationships. Mm, thank you for sharing that. So a question. Um, we're pretty sure you knew the basics of ICWA, ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, but from from all of your trainings. Um, but we're curious as to whether, can you tell us what happened, what, excuse me, what helped you understand the ICWA guidelines? Sure. And I want to preface this by when I took a look at I had actually always, I think for like 15 years, I've always looked at the waiting kids. I grew up looking at waiting kids with my mom. This was just part of how I was raised. Um, and one thing I would see is ICWA guidelines apply on the on some of the children, quite a lot of them, unfortunately. And so I did a little digging even before the trainings. And the first thing I thought about when I went through the trainings is I don't want to do this. I don't want to be part of an ICWA case. I, it's not appropriate it's complicated, it's messy, but it's also probably not appropriate for me. And so I set a wall of that's not what I'm going to do. And I, I think I was pretty clear with our social worker. We don't want to do ICWA because again, I feel like as a white family, that wasn't appropriate. It's our responsibility to step back and let other families who are there and part of the culture be present for those children. Um, and then we got that call. <laughs> so you know, we didn't know a ton about ICWA, except that I felt like it just simply isn't appropriate for me to get involved willingly and voluntarily. Now, if it happens, I'm going to do my best to then I want to be focused on reunification, finding a, a family that's within the culture whenever possible. And that is the bulk of what I knew going into it. The nuances around placement preferences, um, parent preferences, um, even just the fact that um, it has to do with uh, like the the location of the child and the family to both the parent and the culture. There's all these nuances to it that I just didn't understand and that you don't learn about unless you're just kind of immersed in it. Wow. Okay. Um, so what advice for families 
do you have who want to learn about other cultures, particularly those with tribal affiliations? You know, I first would say learning about culture, it you should do that no matter what. It's so important to learn about other cultures besides yourself. I'm not the type of person that wants to sit in my bubble. I want to know. I want to learn. I know that I'm going to be the best me if I understand and respect others. And so, you know, even early on, I, I was studying other cultures as part of my college background. Um, and so I highly recommend like the very first thing is just be open to taking classes. You know, if you're going back to school, take a class that's outside of your comfort zone. Take a language class, take a culture class, a history class that challenges you. If you're done with school or you're not in school right now, there are so many nonprofits that offer programming and educational experiences, um, not just indigenous cultures, but all different cultures. And so really like, if you're saying, gosh, what do I do this weekend? Pull up a calendar and look at what are all the nonprofits in the area? What are all the events going on? Pick something you haven't done before. Go with an open mind, listen, connect and talk to people. I think that is the very first thing is just being open and just saying, I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to do something different this week. And, you know, not everybody has the resources to get out and do things. The gas costs a lot right now, for example, and not everything like where I live, I'm kind of isolated from a lot of different events. So we have to drive up to the cities a lot or in different parts of the state. So reading is also a good option. It's not the ideal option. And I'm going to be full disclosure. I <laughs> I got a little bit of a hard time about that from um, from the tribal attorney when we were going through our, our court case because I had referenced some books and it wasn't all we were doing, but I had referenced some books and they were very right to call me out and say, you can't learn everything in a book. So being the more you can actually be present and connect with people and build relationships over time so that you're learning culture organically, that's going to be far more beneficial. But like I said, not everybody can do that. So you start where you can start. You start with the reading. You start by visiting websites, watching videos. Um, I A great example is going to powwows. If you're interested in indigenous culture, you can go to powwows. They are most, for the most part, they're very much open to the public. And they're every weekend, pretty much all season long. So from like May to November, you will find a powwow in the upper Midwest. Um, but I highly recommend before you go, you take the time to go online, read read the event information. Um, there are a lot of websites that can even like teach you what's etiquette at a powwow, understanding what's okay to do, what's not okay, when's okay to take pictures, um, just to make sure you're being respectful. And if you can, um, contact the organizers. Some of the smaller powwows have um, organizers that are just, they're just families that might be just, you know, 30 minutes down the road from you. So reach out and say, hey, I'm interested in going. What should I expect? Is it okay for me to attend? And then you go and you you can just be present and observe. You don't have to do anything, but just take it all in and absorb what you're seeing. Um, and that's the biggest thing. And then just start talking to people ask questions. I think you answered all of my questions about how to make those connections for attending a powwow and making those cultural connections. So great, great advice. Yeah, there's so much more too. It's it's not just powwows. There's so many other events that happen. There's a lot of um, educational materials out there, I know, within the school districts themselves. So that's another thing. So if, let's say you have a, a 
a child who's placed in your home and, and this isn't something that you're familiar with. Um, check with your local school district because I know we've learned here um, in our community, we have a fantastic organization within the district that supports families. So my daughter is very much enrolled in that program. So she will get throughout her time in the school district, language and culture lessons and activities and events that are just for her and her community of other students. And then we're involved in that parent organization as well. So we were help, we were out planting a medicine garden at the middle school of recently. And we have pizza connections to meet other families, like just hang out, have some pizza and, and chat and play games. Um, and that's just a way to also get involved in the culture more organically. Thanks, Samantha. So in addition to learning how to connect with your daughter's culture, what have you learned throughout this experience and what advice do you have for families on how to navigate foster care and the adoption process? Yeah, you know, I didn't know going into this how complicated the the CPS side and the case side, like going to court piece of ICWA can be. I had no idea because my experiences were very much limited to there. We follow this timeline and we do these things and these are the steps, but with ICWA, there's, there are more steps and there are more people involved and navigating that became really complicated uh, very quickly. There you're, you're going to spend a lot more time with an ICWA case searching for uh, an, a preferred placement preference. So if you are, let's say, not on the preferred list or you're at the bottom of a list of about five, five different categories, there's going to be an extended time to find a family that maybe is a better fit culturally. So you have to be prepared to say, well, typically, let's say you have a, a young child in your home and you would start the process for, let's say it's you know this is going to termination for some reason. Maybe you're not going to see a TPR because maybe that's not appropriate. We're going to look at a different option. We're going to look at permanent custody, for example. Or maybe we're going to try reunification a little bit longer. We're going to give mom more chances. We're going to provide her with more resources. There's a lot more handholding because we want to make sure we're being culturally relevant and culturally supportive. We're going to give it more time. We're going to be more respectful. Um, to the parents, which I wish we did anyway, regardless. I don't think that should be specific to ICWA personally, but um, so you're going to see like, you might be asked to do more. Can you go pick mom up to bring her to the visits? Or can we do these visits in a different place? Like maybe I, we did a lot of, I took mom out to pizza a lot <laughs> um, or just met her at public parks or libraries. We did things differently. Um, and I did a lot of that coordination with permission, I, you know, a lot of communication with, with our social workers, and we made sure that we looped in the tribal workers as well. Um, but we found different ways to do things, and it does take longer. And so you have to be a lot more patient there. And then there's the gray areas that I want to talk about. Um, ICWA isn't cut and dry. And in, in Minnesota, we have something called MIFPA that I don't know that a lot of people understand or or realize as, as a thing as well. So with ICWA, ICWA is a federal guideline and there are certain rules and on who might qualify or fit within those guidelines and what cases would ICWA apply to. In Minnesota, we have expanded guidelines that really allow the tribe to say, you know what, 
this child is eligible regardless of whether mom or dad were members of that tribe. So it expands that potential for a child to be eligible for protections, which means that you can't make the assumption, let's say, for example, in our case, um, our daughter's mother and father are not members of a tribe. So ICWA at the face of it may not apply. But within Minnesota, it does apply because the tribe would consider her daughter still eligible for membership. And so that is okay. But you have to be aware of some of those nuances and not just write it off. Oh, well, mom's not a member. Dad's not a member. Recognize that you should still pick up the phone or have the social worker pick up the phone and call a tribe and say, hey, we want to follow up. We hear this child may have some ancestry or some relatives in your community. Should you be involved? Do you want to be involved? So err on the side of it applies rather than the other way around, because you don't want to make the mistake of getting it wrong later down the road. The other piece that's kind of a gray area is there are ways in which placement decisions happen. Um, in our case, uh, our, our daughter's mother was very adamant pretty much from the get-go. This is where she wants her daughter to be. We built a really strong relationship, and I know we'll touch on that in a little bit, um, but we built a really strong relationship with her, and she became family. And so it was really important for her, for her daughter to stay with us. And that didn't necessarily align with what the tribal social worker and the tribal, um, the tribal leaders felt was the right fit. And so we had a little bit of a, a problem, a conundrum on we have two different groups going two different directions on where they wanted to go with placement. And ultimately you have the gray area of, well, does mom get a say that overrides the tribal preference? And the law does allow for that. There is a deviation option. Parent preference allows for deviation from placement preference. However, depending on the state you're in or the community you're in, whether or not that has been enforced in court, it's it's been up in the air. So we really had to look at it from a different perspective. And that's where it was really valuable for us to say, we need an attorney to understand, number one, what is ICWA? What is MIFPA? Does mom actually get a say? Is that allowed or not allowed? And when we learned what that was, we said, okay, we need to step back and let mom take the wheels here. And she had an attorney to support her directly who understood ICWA, MIFPA could answer all her questions, could support her her preferences, but also understood tribal law, custom, all of that to work within our system. So I just, I would say, I highly recommend if you get involved in a case that's going to go beyond just a short-term placement, consult an attorney, even just for an hour and just say, hey, this is what's going on. I just want to make sure we're being respectful to the culture, to the tribe, following the letter of the law. Um, we just need some advice on how to proceed. For us, yeah. we did something like that. We contacted a fantastic attorney and just said that. He clarified everything on, does mom get a say? Um, how do the placement preferences work? What is MIFPA? All of these things and whether or not it made sense to kind of push to support mom's preferences or should we back off? And that was incredibly valuable for us to make some decisions on how we were going to handle things going forward while trying to be as respectful to the tribe as possible. 
I think it's an important point you made too about each state has its own laws as well mm -hmm. as federal guidelines they have to follow. Um, MIFPA is the Minnesota Indian Family Pre Preservation Act. So yeah. just so people know that Minnesota does have their own act as well. And it's incredibly important that we have these laws. It's it's an interesting place to be in and in my position where we are not a placement preference and we were not necessarily the tribe's first preference. Um, we were mom's first preference. And I want to make sure that people understand that regardless of how the outcome of this case is, we adopted, we have a TPR. That's not necessarily what is customary. Um, but that doesn't mean we are against ICWA or MIFPA at all. We're quite the opposite. We are parent rights, 100%. We are respecting culture, 100%. And it's really important when you go into a case like this, it's going to get messy and it might even get a little ugly, but you have to just step back and recognize your own privilege and just go with the flow and follow not just your heart, but also the letter of the law is incredibly important. Right. And I think that's maybe what makes your case unique is that that termination of parental rights did occur, which is not common with these. Right. And we were not pushing for that at all. We actually were very comfortable. We had been trying to push for reunification far longer than I think even we're, we were supposed to, um, because we really we love mom. She's fantastic. She's very present in her children's lives, including uh, my daughter, our daughter. Um, and so we didn't necessarily want to, but this is something that she felt safer with. This is something where she felt like she wanted her daughter to have permanency. And in her mind, permanency was terminating rights, proper adoption in that sense. Um, she did not want to just transfer custody over. Um, but that doesn't mean she lost her presence in her daughter's life either. We still treat it as if it was just a, a transfer of custody versus um, a TPR. So Samantha, you mentioned these balance and boundaries throughout your story and there's no manual or trainings for how to balance you know and and have boundaries with with birth family connections so if you could put it in a manual if you had to create one what would you what would your manual be that <laughs> <laughs> there's no one size fits all when it comes to family <laughs> um i think the first thing would be going in by setting aside your own expectations. And this is the hardest thing. I, I think there's a lot of fear around what maintaining a family connection would be like. Um, but you have to work through it. Like I look at bravery as you're scared and keep going. So you have to be brave and work through your fears and say, I'm going to set aside my fear that this is messy my fear that this is ugly, my fear that something will go wrong in the future, my fear that my kid will leave me later to go back to her family, whatever it is, you have to set that aside to build the relationship. And you start with baby steps. So I think that's the second thing is the baby steps. So for, for me and my daughter's mom, that was that first hug. But then also remembering she because she's scared and there's an imbalance of power, Future times, I had to step back and say, I'm going to ask first, may I give you a hug? Do you need support? Would you like that rather than just forcing it on her? So again, giving her a sense of power there to try to balance it out a little bit so that we can build that foundation. 
um, making sure she's always included was very important as well in building the relationship. So, you know, we tried to do everything the way you're supposed to, at least in my mind. Um, you know, she's sober. She can come to doctor's appointments. She comes to educational appointments, birthday parties, you name it. And we would go there too, go to wherever she's at. Um, and we continue that to this day. So it's really about, for me, that second piece of it is just setting the stage for that back and forth. I'm giving you a little, so you'll give me a little. Um, and then the other piece of it is just being present beyond the child was important within reason. And this is where boundaries matter. Um, but, you know, when, when my daughter's mom needs help with, you know, she's looking for a new apartment and she's having a hard time. There's been some, some issues in terms of her, you know, her past makes it hard for her to find housing. So helping her with, uh, okay, here's the social worker's phone number to call, or here's an apartment complex. I know that's a little more open-minded or little things like that to get her feeling confident. She can come to me for help. That's beyond her child so that she knows she can trust me. And then hopefully that goes and grows over time. Like she'll trust me with her child as well. Um, so that's another piece of it. And then I, I try to always honor my commitments. So that's the other, the final thing is if you say we're going to do this, unless there's some real reason, like let's say you're working with the county and the county says, oh, never mind, you can't do that. Fair enough. Or mom's not sober, or there's some sort of violence or safety risk. Okay, then we have to pivot. But otherwise, I keep my commitments. You know, you want you want to get together at a park. I will be there, even if it's thirty degrees out. We're going to be there because I said I would be there. And the same goes for extended family now as well. Um, so she now entrusts me with her other children to come and spend time with us. They're not part of the system. They come over and spend weekends with us and hang out and we talk about college or we talk about what's going on at school and we get to be auntie and uncle and build that relationship that way. How big is your extended family now? <laughs> <laughs> Dozens of people. <laughs> Dozens. So um, my daughter has four siblings with mom and there's two with dad. Um and the four with mom, we see all the time. They spend a lot of time with us. Actually, we've got two of them coming in about a week and a half to spend the weekend with us. So it'd be a full house. Um, and then there's there's great aunt who we talk to all the time. I think we talk to her the most. Um, great grandma is like my grandma now. Um, my grandparents, they um, passed on when I was much younger. And having another grandmother in my life has been amazing. I love it that she calls me randomly at 10 o'clock at night just to to just chat, to just say, hey, I'm up and the kids went to sleep. Let's talk. And it just, it makes me happy. Or that she just wants to chit chat about life. How am I doing? Um, just leaves a voicemail or sends me a text thinking of you, love you. I mean, it just, it makes me a little sappy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it also helps me, it helps me because we have that relationship. I know how parenting happens in their house. I know what their home culture is like, and I can try to reflect that in our own culture and our family as well. And, um, and I think that helps as far as the going back and forth with visits, we have consistency and support. And I love that my daughter can go over there and she goes, grandma. 
right? And she can call her mom, mom, and it's okay. Even if I'm standing right there, it is okay because we have built that relationship and that we understand each other's culture. We understand each other's needs and goals, and we know our own limitations, our own weaknesses, and we can be pretty transparent about that with each other now all these years later. Yeah, there's a lot of trust that you had to build up. and It's and... not overnight. And I think that's the other thing. You have to make sure that you can be okay with, like, this is a lifelong commitment. <laughs> um, and it isn't overnight. And there are bumps all the time. Yeah, there's always bumps. Like, <laughs> there are times where I have to say, I'm not going to call back for 24 hours because this is getting crazy. Um, and that's, you have, it, but that doesn't mean the relationship's over. There are, and I know that I want to also point out, I understand there are situations where you do have to set absolute firm boundaries for safety. I understand there are other considerations. I've got friends going through situations where their children are making poor choices due to some of those influences from extended family. So I absolutely understand that. And that's why those boundaries are incredibly important. I also know you can't control your children forever. Um, you can't control other people. So it's, you have to be a safe space for your family and have freedom within limits and just rest, respect that the process is messy. Things are going to go wrong. People are going to get in trouble or say inappropriate things. You have to just work through it because it's family, just as if it was the same family you were with from the time you were born. It's once, once you adopt, your family is huge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So Samantha, lastly, do you have any education materials or resources you would like to share with families? Sure. There's so many um, ways to get involved or learn. Um, one of the programs, uh, it's a nonprofit that is based in the cities as well as north of the cities is Dream of Wild Health. It's one of the ones that our family is a big advocate for. Among a lot of their amazing programs, they have a lot of youth-focused experiences, so they're really about sustainable foods, healthy food, growing produce, and they really um, advocate for teaching youth business skills and leadership and how to be an advocate. And so they have a, a farmer's market and a, a crop share um, and a lot of events just throughout the year. They're always looking for volunteers. Truly anybody can get involved and be a part of that, whether or not you have a youth in your care. I know like for our daughter, as, as soon as she's old enough, she's going to get involved in their summer camp programs. Um, and really, uh, she loves, she just loves farming and the idea of growing produce. So she's going to love this. Um, but it's a great way to network, meet other families and, and support this amazing nonprofit while learning about culture. Um, and especially if you have youth in your care, even more valuable. There's also plenty others. The American Indian Center is a great one. Going to powwows. There are a lot of nonprofits associated with the different tribal communities to check out as well. So I always encourage people, if you're interested, to reach out to any of the communities, contact social services, or go to their website because often their community centers will list events, activities, and nonprofits they're affiliated with as well. Great. And that great. was Dream of Wild Health. And that's dreamofwildhealth.org. And the Equal Law Center is icwlc.org for a few other resources. And I think you mentioned the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Yes, that's an, another one. Um, 
Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center offers a lot of resources for housing, um, support groups, programming, reunification support. So that's a great one as well, especially if you're up in the cities. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, Samantha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. When my daughter is old enough, if she wants to share her story in full, I feel like a book could come out of what actually went on behind the scenes. Uh, but that is her story to tell someday, not mine. Yeah, well, thank you, Samantha. It's, it's been a pleasure having you with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. I'd like to share some additional Native American cultural resources for our listeners. Our webinar library at fosteradoptmn.org has many great resources. But in relation to the topic of ICWA, check out The Importance of ICWA and Redressing the Wrongs of History, presented by Kimmy Wind Hummingbird. Kimmy is a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation and Cherokee descendancy and shares her expertise on the Indian Child Welfare Act. For more information about Kimmy and her agency, their website is nnctc.org. That's National Native Children's Trauma Center. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.